Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Dr. Russell Thackeray about performance, accountability, and building employee resilience in organizations. Russell Thackeray, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Hey, John, good to see you again. Well, good to meet you, in fact, to be more yeah. precise. Yeah, no, it, I really am excited to talk with you today. It's been fun um, doing kind of the pre-interview chat and getting to know you a little bit. And I think uh, we really do share a lot of interest and professional background. So it's going to be a lot of fun having a discussion today about employee well-being, burnout, uh, building resilience in organizations, and uh, related topics. Uh, As we get started, I just want to quickly share um, Dr. Thackeray's uh, bio. Dr. Russell Thackeray is an expert at assisting people and organizations uh, in driving change, achieving goals uh, and win in a constant and sustainable way. A psychologist, coach, and hypotherapist, Dr. Thackeray regularly works with soft issues in business by building the strong culture and emotional and mental toughness that allows people to thrive whatever life throws at them. Uh, As a speaker and a coach and trainer, Dr. Thackeray can be challenging, especially with senior groups and driving sustainable change by creating accountability through resilience tactics and techniques. Uh, He has substantial and varied experience working within sales and marketing operations management, including a spell as a CEO in a UK law firm, as well as as time as an organizational development consultant and coach. I could go on and on uh, about Dr. Thackeray uh, and Russell about all of your um, accomplishments, achievements, your your professional background. Um, Truly, it's it's an honor to have that chance to speak with you today. Anything that you would like to add before we really dive on in? I think um, one of the things that shaped me and has a, has a major impact on me is I, my first career was actually as a professional musician. And um, I was a freelance orchestral viola player. And, um, and I think when it comes to um, thinking about the world of work, we often use sports analogies and metaphors and we take information and um, context from those areas. But the performing arts has much more to give us than the sporting world where often what you're doing is you're training for a long period of time to, to produce one massive achievement over a very short period of time. Whereas if you're working as a viola player in the pit and the is a Rob, you're doing the same show eight times a week. Then you'll do the cast change. So that's another 10, you know, the, to the two times in that week. Then you're doing the odd, you know, rehearsal when the, something happens in the theater or there's a, there's a music change or something. And having to perform, whether you like it or not, whether you're well or not, whether you are 
in the mood or not, whether you're feeling psychologically safe or not, whether you are drunk or not, uh, whether you are anything or not, is actually quite an interesting preparation for the world of work and one which I think has shaped my approach. And I have no, make no apologies to that, that, um, you know, I believe that people and potential go arm in arm together and that we sort of have a culture today that works against us in some of those areas, that we've slightly built a culture that's very cosseting, taking away risk, taking away accountability. And I think it's to the detriment of some of our potential. And um, and certainly when we think about, or when I think about resilience, I very much think about this idea of how we, all the lessons I learned from a very early stage, which were around actually, how do you become the person you want to be? How do you become the artist you want to be? How do you communicate a true message from yourself but using a mechanism. And for me, organisational change is all about that. It's the same narrative. It's that same idea that you want something to happen, but and you have tools at your disposal. But as a leader, you've got to figure out what it is you want. And there will be people who don't want to come with you. There will be people whose feelings will be hurt. And that's their choice, not yours. Yeah, thank you for that. And and that's that's fascinating about your musical background. I completely agree that I think uh, we undersell the value of the arts, the performing arts in leadership. Um, uh, I, I don't have any professional background in it, but uh, I, I've been a singer my whole life and I continue as an adult to sing in church choir and community choirs and things like that. And I, I gain a lot of you know value from that. I, it has a lot of meaning for me and I like to, to share, you know, whatever small talent I have in that way. Um, And I've learned lots of of life lessons through my involvement with music. Uh, I was just interviewing someone um, recently who, before becoming an organizational change uh, consultant, uh, had been a professional dancer. Um, You know, I I just think there's a lot that we can gain uh, from all sorts of backgrounds. And it doesn't just have to be the, the kind of stereotypical um, cliched sports metaphors right yeah and and of course you know as well as I know that in terms of neuroplasticity and giving your ch- child the very best chance of dementia prevention you know you should teach your allow your child to learn to dance and to learn or be involved in the musical world particularly um, you know before the age of 17 because it's just so good for the brain not just the social aspects of it and the failure aspect of it, but actually it's just it's just very, very good for flexing the neuroplasticity um, neurons in our brains. And it's just great. And there's a joke, of course, in the orchestral world that, um, that, that singers and drummers are not musicians, but I will forgive you that just for the moment, if that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You know, so you started um, to, to mention the issue of resilience that, how, how important that is in today's society. And, you know, just to provide a little framing and context as we go into this uh, dialogue, you know, it's an interesting year. 2020 has, has been um, quite challenging. Not only do we have a global pandemic that we're dealing with and all the stresses, anxieties, pressures uh, associated with that, uh, but, you know, silly things like murder hornets and, um just all of the, the various um, things that are being thrown at us. And it's a particularly socially and politically charged time as well. 
Uh, I don't I don't know if you followed the news in the in the U.S. at all, but yeah. in terms of Black Lives Matter and and um, the civil unrest around racial inequality and systemic racism, uh, LGBTQ plus issues in the Supreme Court and um, and and the, it's an election year and all of the uh, the anxieties around um, politics. I mean, it is it has been a year and it's taking its toll on people. And if ever there was a time where people needed to learn. Um, how to be more resilient, I think now is the time. Um, so yeah. I, I, I really am uh, excited to, to explore this a little bit with you. Well, and I think that's fascinating, isn't it? Because you're right, um, but I just like to put the word some in front of people because some people are having a whale of a time. Some people are seeing opportunity. Some people are making millions. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's a concert violinist yesterday who hasn't worked uh, since February the 2nd or 3rd, whenever it was, when all his work came to a halt. And his brother manages a medical devices company who's just had a £6 million contract awarded to him from the National Health Service. So there are, what's very interesting here is the extremes of winning and losing seem to be showing up this year. And I think what's what's fascinating is it's thrown into stark relief. You know, one of, one of the key principles of stress management and anxiety management is the idea of control. And I think we're seeing both in your political system and our, um, a sort of sickness at the heart of our demo- well, supposedly democratic systems. You know, basically, whichever way your votes swing and whichever way our, our votes swing, most votes, most colleges don't change in your areas and most seats don't change in our areas. areas. What, you know, however, so actually what we're discovering is that we have a huge problem with control and that often just turns into civil unrest. And it was, and it was, it was particularly um, interesting because I was chatting to this chap yesterday as I was talking about, and we were chatting about the time we were in college, and whilst we were there, exactly the same situation, exactly the same situation was going on with riots across the UK. It was hot. There were flash points. It was about, um, it was about black issues again, and it was about underprivileged people. And these things have to go away. We have to think potentially the new way a new socio-economic model because the one we've got at the moment is creating too much win and too much loss in the sort of net balance and what you have is the top two percent are really winning at the moment and the rest of us are suffering and um and however you put the spin on it it's 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 something that's burning and and it's for, for me at the moment this is the massive time and if you think about resilience as you come out of something, as you learn the lessons, as you take accountability, you begin to innovate. And what I see happening far too much is that people are just going back to the what we call the old normal, but using Zoom a bit more. And this is a massive opportunity to say, look, you know, social, social, the social fabric of both of our countries could be transformed at the moment. The way we work, the way we think about people, the way we think about the environment. Um, could be massive. You know, the, the appetite's there, the goodwill's there, the ground, the swell is there. The Black Lives Matter showed that. Me Too showed that. We have a new generation of people who want to innovate. And of course, the problem is we've got the traditional white privilege issue where, you know, the minority now are holding the majority back. And, and, the, and time immemorial history shows us that there is only one way that plays out. And, you know, that's the thing about history. We can look back only 100 years in Russia and see how that scenario might, might wreak havoc for both of our countries.
Yeah, or, or I think of, of South Africa even more recently, yeah. um, right? There's so many examples. So yeah. absolutely, it's, it's an interesting time for sure. And I, I didn't mean for today to be a big political discussion, but- No, um, it wasn't meant to be, sorry. But no, 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 you're good. Um, but I think it's philosophy. Let's, say, let's call it philosophical discussion rather than political. That'll help. Exa- that well, ex- exactly, exactly. And, and, and the challenge is, you know, in both of our countries has been how everything has become politicized. So you can hardly even have a, a just thoughtful debate, a thoughtful discussion about issues without um, it becoming this hyper politicized, polarized type of an issue. Um, and that's, that's part of the problem that we're facing. Um, well, I, 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 I so agree with you. I think we have a situation uh, where one side says X and other side says Y. And, the, and, and only maybe half a dozen years ago, we would have had a debate about that. And then we would have maybe coalesced our views and ended up X, X struck Y plus, plus or minus one. And now what we do is just shout at each other, you know. And what's happening is it's now okay in a strange sort of way to say the justification of my argument is if you don't agree with me, you're hurting my feelings. And that's your fault. And, and I think one of the things we think about corporate resilience um, is we have to really think this one through because no one can hurt your feelings without you making that choice to have them hurt. And this is the beginning of resilience thinking, isn't it? And it's, the, it's this a bit of a thing that we have disempowered leaders and managers by assuming that that statement is true. In fact, I was working with an organization quite recently and, and basically their leadership doctrine was if I hurt your feelings, I'm in the wrong. Well, I mean, can you imagine how that plays out? Because not everyone is, you know, playing with a straight bat. What people are saying is they're just saying, well, I don't want to do that task. So you hurt my feelings. I'm not going to do it. The leader says, oh, um, uh, what do I do now then? Because I have no performance management system to back me up. And there's a state of anarchy develops. And of course, what ends up happening is the more that culture gets hold, the more sickness you have, more absence you have, you have more miserable people. Because of course, you've got less accountability. And I always think more accountability adds for more workplace satisfaction, not the other way around. And I think we have to use the sort of tough love style of leadership to, to recognise that we're leading people. We've got to love them enough to care. But actually, sometimes you've got to be tough to get the best out of people because they don't, they don't know how to do it. And sometimes we do. And sometimes we have to do that together. And sometimes yeah. the person has to come up with the solution themselves. Well, this, this, this disabling theory that, you know, I'll take offense because of something you've said and that's therefore your fault is, is a challenge. So sure. it's a beginning, it's the beginning of thinking about resilience really. Yeah. Well, and, and there's no question that people can and do say and behave in offensive ways. So, uh, so a leader can do things that are genuinely uh, abusive, offensive, harmful and hurtful to their people we're not saying that we should excuse that in any way. In fact, you're saying the opposite. You're saying they should be held accountable. But what you're talking about is how we, as the recipient of whatever is said to us, we also have a choice. We have a choice on how we're going to respond to that, how yeah. we're going to react to that. And we can choose uh, we can choose to ruminate over it and allow it to completely destroy our day, our week, our year, um, and our performance in our job. Or we can choose to respond in a more resilient way uh, and and learn from the feedback, even as garbled as it may be and how imperfect as it may have been delivered, and we can grow from it. 
Um, again, that's not that's not to excuse bad behavior, and there's times where where um, leaders need to be held accountable. Uh, but you're right; we can't have a situation, we can't have a culture where uh, people aren't allowed to be straight with each other, where we can't hold each other accountable. That's interesting. Let me let me nuance what I mean slightly more, because I'm going to slightly disagree with you there, if I may. Um, we know that if a leader has a group of people in front of them and, and, and announces a message to all 12 of them, it's likely that three of them will think it's fantastic. Three of them will be royally bent out of shape and six of them, well, three of them won't have heard because they've been doing something else. And three of them will be madly amused by whatever colour socks that person was wearing that day. Uh, and so for me, it is actually a different proposition, which is it's, it's okay, as long as the intent's clear, and long, long, as long as the, in, the intent is pure, sometimes leaders get things wrong because their skills level is poor. But often people, leaders are not getting it wrong. It's just that people are choosing to be offended. So for me, yes, you're right. If you are, if you are markedly abusing or bullying people over a period of time, that's fine. But actually, it's, it's okay for leaders to say what needs to be said. And I think what we're doing is leaders are stopping saying what needs to be said because they're terrified of hurting people's feelings. Now, if you're swearing, if you're calling people names, if you're using physical violence, if you're, you know, if you're being racially or sexually or gender-based offensiveness, that's, that's different. But on the whole, I'd, I'd like leaders to step up and actually be a bit more assertive, but with the intention of knowing that it's about performance. It's about yeah. what you do, not who you are. And this is the differentiation point, isn't it? And I think leaders, we, 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 you know, we talk about leadership as being this esoteric, conceptual thing. I mean, leadership management goes hand in hand to a certain extent, and managers are there to increase productivity and improve results. And therefore, that's what they should be talking about. And it doesn't matter what someone looks like and whether they're pretty or whether they're wearing a nice shirt. What matters is the job they're doing. And I just genuinely think that we've not trained people or developed people over the last 20 years to think about that. It's either been um, performance at 50,000 miles up in the air, or it's been so granular, it's been offensive because actually, so intellectually offensive because, well, we knew that. What you're not telling me is the new things about people, you know, the neuroscience about people. And I think this is the this is the thing that we need to figure out in our world, isn't it? It's that, it's that thing about how do you how do you work with millennials, Generation YZ and all that, all that lot? Because they're different. And, and people are moaning about this new generation. And we're the generation that are moaning about them. And we're the generation that parented them. <laughs> it's the ultimate <laughs> lack of accountability, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, and I appreciate you adding the, the additional uh, nuance and explanation. I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and accountability doesn't need to be a scary word. Um, and unfortunately, it kind of has become that in a lot of contexts. Um, I'm a scholar practitioner, I, I, I'm a professor, I, I work at the university, I also do consulting. And recently, um, we got a new university president who decided um, she wanted to up you know, the ante in terms of accountability. So that became one of the core themes of you know, part of the vision and the mission, and, and that is being repeated over and over again. And the amount of backlash um, and pushback that she received because people said, uh, because she said people needed to be held accountable um, was incredible to me. I'm like, how in the world 
can we function a large like my university has 42,000 students we're a huge university how do we function mm -hmm. if we're not accountable to each other to our students to other stakeholders uh, it just has to be there and we have to be able to say it we have to be able to call people on their bad performance we and that's a if I mean we need to do it in a in a productive way but that's how we help them improve so that they can um, better serve our students so we can better serve our community uh, and and if we're not having those kind of accountability discussions um, and helping people to be more resilient uh, amidst, you know, the, the challenging feedback that they might receive, then we're doing a disservice to them and to the organization. So Russell, it, it really has been a pleasure talking with you today. Uh, we haven't had enough time and unfortunately we're gonna have to cut it short. Uh, so I, I would love to have you back and have a chance to chat. Uh, more on the topics of resilience, burnout, um, and and employee well-being. Um, before we leave today, though, I want to give you a chance to share with the listeners how they can get connected with you uh, and learn more about what you're doing. Uh, my company is qedod.com, which is the website, and you can join me on LinkedIn at my name, Russell Thackeray. They're the two best ways of getting hold of me. And um, perhaps when we get in touch, we again we'll talk about some new ideas around leadership and. The book I'm writing around that sort of area and um, some contentious thoughts about resilience because uh, I shall enjoy talking to about, about them and obviously getting your thoughts and feedback as well because obviously you're someone whose opinion I respect in this area. Well thank you thank you and, and I look forward to having a, a further discussion. I really encourage listeners to reach out uh, to Russell, uh, a great expert in this area with a lot of really wonderful insights so please uh, look him up, reach out to him uh, and Russell, uh, I look forward to having a chance to talking with you again soon. Perfect. Look forward to it. Thanks so, so much. Okay. Thanks, everyone. And I hope you stay healthy and safe and have a wonderful week. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.